you need to be clever about how you resist. Um, peace is a damn fine argument that doesn't have a recourse to threat. That's what peace is. And I, w what peace needs to know is to how to speak in a way where its message can be understood and in a way where those who most need to hear it might, if they can do the, the courageous act of listening, might be able to hear it as an invitation rather than as a threat. And that is the work of peace. Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Now, before I introduce you to my esteemed guest this week, I wanted to let you know that we are days away from launching the nonprofit arm of Let's Give a Damn, formerly known as Let's Give a Damn Cares. Now, Let's Give a Damn Cares is a global team of damn givers committed to showing up during difficult moments in time. Let's Give a Damn Cares provides financial grants to people and organizations who are giving a damn in unique, meaningful, and very important ways. Additionally, we plan to help these people and organizations by connecting them with volunteers, providing them with additional resources, and encouraging them along the way. Basically, when shit hits the fan, we will show up. I can't wait for you to join our team of givers and helpers, and I can't wait for what we are going to accomplish together. So stay tuned for more on this and go follow us on Instagram as we prepare for the launch at LGAD cares. That's at LGAD cares on Instagram. Okay, friends, now it's time for me to introduce you to my guest. You're about to listen to my conversation with the personification of peace, Padraig Otuma. Really, if peace was a person, it would be Padraig. Padraig is a poet, theologian, master storyteller, and a peacemaker from Ireland. His work centers around themes of language, power, conflict, and religion. Padraig is the host of the Poetry Unbound podcast from On Being Studios. He is an incredible public speaker. You must check out his TEDx talk, which is one of my favorites. It's titled Imagining Peace. It's so fucking good. He has so many published works, and you must read them all. He also has a book of poetry coming out this autumn called Poetry Unbound, and he has a small book coming out later this year called Feed the Beast. And the next season of the Poetry Unbound podcast comes out next month in September. So look out for that. Add it to your podcast app. And lastly, a reminder that you are about to sit under, not trying to put too much undue pressure on Padraig, although there's no pressure because we already recorded this conversation. You're about to sit under the tutelage of a master teacher and storyteller. I mean, yes, he is well-educated and well-read, but I'm not just talking about Padraig's smarts. Padraig is smart and wise and delivers these bits of wisdom in exceptionally effective ways. So I believe that you should listen to this conversation while doing one of the following. Make a cup of coffee and sit down in quiet. Light that cigar and go take a quiet walk. Do something while listening to this conversation where you're not too distracted. I don't want you to miss a thing. Miss anything I say during this conversation, that's fine. You've heard enough from me. But when Padraig speaks up, listen. I promise you won't regret it. Now, before we dive into this conversation, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show. Anything goes. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the extraordinary Padraig Otuma. Let's go. Padre Gotuma, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm so very glad you're here. Thanks very much, Nick. It's nice to be with you. Yes, it is so nice to be with you as well. I want to begin 
our conversation by sharing that the timing for this conversation, in my mind, could not be more perfect uh, or more appropriate, really. Over the next few weeks leading up to, you're in Ireland, I'm in the U.S., so this doesn't really affect you, but I, I do think it affects the world. We're coming up on these important midterm elections here in the U.S., and the outcome of these elections will have, I think, massive ramifications on freedom and democracy and certain rights. And there's a lot, there's a lot at stake coming up in November. Therefore, we are dedicating quite a few conversations leading up to that. Not all of them will be overtly political, but I am going to be having conversations with activists and leaders and volunteers and politicians because I do think it is monumentally important to address what is at stake and to make sure that everyone is voting and making sure the voice is heard. Therefore, this conversation, which will be about peace and storytelling and the power of words and the importance of us using our voices, whether it is vocally or in writing, to talk about freedom and love and peace and, and, and all these things, I think this conversation will set us up perfectly for some of the conversations that we're going to have. So I really appreciate <laughs> your life's work that has led you up to this point where we can have this conversation and you can help us go into this next season of the podcast thinking appropriately about the effective ways to move forward. Mm -hmm. Or inappropriately. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, before we get into a lot of your work, your words, the wisdom that you've shared with me and with uh, so many people over the years. I want to get a bit of your story, and I know that you've shared it, and I hope this is not a bored question for you, but it's so interesting for me. I start almost every conversation that I have, and every conversation is different, but most of them start somewhat in this way where I want to get into the story a little bit because you're who you are today because of the people, places, and things that influenced you when you were younger, right? And so I'd love to get, you know, for the sake of time today, a few minutes, an abbreviated version of where did you come from? Who are the people, places, and things that shaped you so that decades later, we are enjoying the fruit of all of that good work, bad work, painful work, the, the things that you've gone through. So um, kind of leading up to your adulthood, I guess, can you just give us an overview of where you've come from and who you've interacted with and who has shaped you? Uh, sure. Um, so I'm from Cork on the very south coast of Ireland. And when I was younger, at the age of two, I was looked after for a few years, maybe for three or four hours a day by a woman who um, didn't speak any English. She only spoke Irish, what Americans sometimes call Gaelic. And so that influenced me hugely. Uh, my mother wasn't well, which is why I was being looked after by this woman for a few hours a day. So I got to primary school speaking two languages and not really knowing that I spoke two languages. And I, I think being bilingual, although my Irish um, needs, uh, needs a lot of improvement, but being bilingual in the sense of feeling like Irish is a mother tongue for me, that alongside English, that that has really shaped my life enormously. I'm always curious about how language shapes itself. And I'm always curious about the the contours. I mean, primarily basic meaning is con continued across um, all languages. You know, it's not like you can say one thing in one language and it's impossible to imply anything like it in another language. But I am interested in the in the poetics about how one language goes about saying one thing. And I think there's something really artistic and interesting and moving and imaginative, really, in looking at the ways within which that can happen. Um, my parents are religious, and so I was brought up in a religious household, Catholic, and that also has played an enormous influence in my life. I went on um, as an adult to study theology, and I am not overly religious, um, but I... I, I do love theology and I love the questions that theology asks. And I am usually fairly bored by the implication that there's any straightforward answers. But I think formulating a good question is important. Um, my my dad's a great musician playing the tin whistle and the oven pipes. So music has always been part of the family. There's six children in the family. Um, and then I'm Irish as well, obviously. And I think 
certainly for me to be an Irish speaker and growing up in Ireland. I was born in 1975. That's during the era of the Troubles. We were far away from the Troubles in Cork. But it was on nightly news and looking at what it is that was happening in Ireland that was a direct manifestation of 400 years of British-Irish relations. That also is a, a profound political education that really did affect me as a child. So much so that I was always keen to meet people from Belfast. And then when the opportunity came, when I was 27, I moved to Belfast, which is still my home, and qualified in conflict mediation. And so I suppose that too is also something important. And the last thing to say is poetry. I'm a product of our school education or school system. Poetry was part of every week in English and Irish classes, learning a poem off by heart every week the entirety of a school career, really, from the age of five to the age of 17. And because I loved poetry and was writing my own, I suppose I felt particularly helped. I just went to the local community school. I didn't go anywhere fancy. But poetry was everywhere. And whether it was taught well or poorly, it was, um, there was never a week without poetry in my life, really. That's really beautiful. I've got a few questions coming out of that. Okay. So I'll try to remember them as I, as I go back. One is you're one of six kids. Where in the lineup are you in those oh, six kids? I'm number I'm number three of six. Yeah, right in the mid. Well, there's I three, guess, it, and then a yeah. gap of five years, and then another three. Oh wow. Okay. Um, yeah. I come from. I have eleven siblings. There's twelve of us, and my mom was ba- so the the closest siblings are, uh, were ten months apart. If you can believe that. Um, yeah, totally. Which, Irish twins, which, that we got, that's yeah, what we call that. Yeah, which basically, yeah, she got pregnant as soon as, you know, uh, within a few weeks, which God is just, it's, yeah, exactly. Oh. And in the, the furthest apart were my brother and I, who were right at the top, we're number one and two. We were 18 months apart. So all 12 oh, kids were between God. 10 and 18 months. And if you can believe it, you know, she still looks at 63. She still looks amazing, works full-time job, like still crushing it on the daily. Uh, having spent 20 odd years pregnant, pretty much straight. So I, I, I understand, uh, big families, but, but I point that out because we didn't have that gap. A lot of times when you see families have, you know, maybe five or six kids, what, what I've seen is exactly what you experienced where they had three, two or three thought they were done. And then a few years came back and said, no, we want to have some more. Um, so that's interesting. Oh, yeah. Do you, do you, do you still, do you get along with your siblings? Are you guys close ish? Oh yeah, I'm very close. Yeah, totally. You guys still still, still yeah. live around each other, then I assume, all in Ireland. No, uh, one's in Australia, one's in England, and then the rest are in Ireland. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that poetry was a part of your weekly uh, education. Uh, now, I well, daily, daily, really, yeah. daily. Yeah. So, yeah. is that unique to Ireland or maybe other parts of Europe? Because that that, that is not. That's not American, whether I think public or private. That is not mm, okay. A something that I know that a lot of people have experienced. Now, I was homeschooled and grew up overseas, so we we share knowing you know at mm. least two languages in common, and that was also a tremendous benefit to my life. One of the greatest gifts that my parents in life gave me was at a young what's, age. What's learning. the language? So I grew up in Guatemala, so Spanish. My dad is Guatemalan. Wow. He was, we were all, most of us were born here in the U.S. They came here as immigrants when I, when they were younger, but we moved back for 10 years when I was a kid and I can't think of a greater gift because I know what, what knowing not just multiple languages, but also multiple cultures, what that does to a person, you can't unlearn those things and you can never see the world in the same way, but just knowing a second language broadens, uh, horizons, you know, both just from how you see the world and how you learn and how you hear, it was really one of the greatest gifts. And I can't, Mm. I can't overstate that. Um, but yeah, poetry being something that you experience on a daily basis, um, that's really unique. And also it gives me obviously some insight into how, not that all, uh, Irish people are poets like you are and people that write, but that makes sense that that was a huge influence on you and shaped, you know, yeah. who you are today. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I don't know much about the American education system, you know, but and I can't. I don't know much about other European education systems either. It's certain, but I, I'd be surprised if there aren't plenty of places where it's part of the everyday. I certainly know that across Iran, that poetry is an enormous part of the everyday there. I, I mean, I, I include in poetry the recitation of sacred texts and prayers as well, because they are of the order of poetry. They might be they might be produced now in a book that might be considered a scripture, but they were always written at the impulse of somebody who was seeking to write a poem. And so I, I think when you go to madrasas or go to um, Jewish schools where people are learning enormous swathes of poetry off by heart, you probably do get plenty of this kind of poetic and literary education in the United States, but probably not in formal education from the sounds of it, of what you're telling me. But certainly my understanding is that in Iran, it, it's uh, as important a part now as it, as it has been, you know, to, to learn poetry off by heart. I don't have children, so I don't know if it continues to be like that. But certainly every week there was a new poem in each language to be learned off by heart. <laughs> I I do have, we have three children that are young-ish, seven, nine, and ten. And just in thinking about our conversation today, it reminded me that we need to put more poetry in front of them in more yeah. beautiful text. Now, they already read a ton. They read more than they watch TV and movies. They love the, you know, words on a page, but mm -hmm. there is something special about, I, I, I've always had, it's always been easy for me to memorize things or fairly easy. So when I was younger, I would, I would just memorize, I would find a, a, everything from like a long quote to a chapter, you know, in, let's just say the Bible or whatever. And I would just memorize it because I, there's something so powerful about finding something beautiful and then putting it to memory and being able to recall it at will. That is really, you know, a, a, a really beautiful thing. I want to touch on the faith aspect of what you said. Um, and I've heard you talk about this, uh, your, your faith journey, but I, I haven't been able to ask a couple questions about it. You know, you grew up in a very religious household. And when you were, I don't know what age, but when you were young, you uh, realized that you were gay, that you are gay. Do you think, and then, and then now in this era, you know, in this season of your life, and probably for, for, for many, many years, you've, you would describe it this way, that you're not overtly religious, but you appreciate certain things about it. Um, did your not, not being fully religious like your parents, did it have anything to do with how you experienced uh, what the church and what your faith hmm. thought about you? and thought about who you were and um, did that did that have any effect on it or was it something totally outside of that? Well, I, I was very religious. I suppose that's important to say and kind of depending on the day, um, I might still be. <laughs> um, the, the question of being religious is different for me than the question of whether you believe in God. For me, the question of, of theoretical physics the question of the exploration of time, the question of what is heat, what is space, what is gravity, what is the quantum experience. All of these things are, are also the deep questions about meaning and the deep questions of what does it mean to be alive in the world to pay attention to the phenomenon of being alive. And so I have studied, I'm on my third degree in theology. I'm submitting a dissertation at Christmas. So the, the questions of religion are utterly alive for me. When I was younger, as a teenager, and then in my 20s and 30s, it was very, very important to me to say I believed in God. But, but that statement has become fairly irrelevant to me now. Because I, 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 I don't think that the verb believe is interesting enough. <laughs> um, I'm much more interested in thinking, how do we speak about what is? How do we pay attention to the phenomenon of being alive? How do we recognize that, that many cultures across the world, perhaps five out of every eight people across the world, belong to a culture where there is a, a textbook, a, a sacred text that uses poetry and narrative and history to try to describe something about 
A, what the world is and B, what it means to live in it. And so from that point of view, I'm very religious, but I, I separate it from the idea of it being beholden in any way to define a dogma about what a God may or may not be. Um, I know a lot about religion and I also get a lot of comfort from the old poem that religion is. You know, um, there've been a, there's been a lot of deaths in my life and I do take comfort going to a funeral where there is a shared language of some kind of ritual because it helps to bring you together, both in the social aspects as well as in the, the prayer and the call and response aspects. Yeah. Well, being gay, I mean, was, was, was hellish. You know, I was born in 75, so I, I suppose I became aware really at the age of 12 that, you know, Everybody was called, I was in an all-boys school at that stage and everybody was calling each other faggot all the time. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, I am one. And I also realized, oh my wow. God, I have to learn how to be quiet, which, you know, I'd already, I'd always been called effeminate or whatever. And so growing up in Ireland, you know, this is during the era when AIDS was being spoken about and so much misinformation and so much um, oppression was happening. It, it it was a very complicated time. I was very involved in religion. And so at the age of 18 was put through three exorcisms to get rid of the, the gay devils in me. And then when wow. those were deemed to have been unsuccessful was sent for a couple of years of reparative therapy, so-called, which was obviously neither therapeutic nor reparative, which was the idea that somehow being gay was the cause of some disruption in your life and that a certain kind of theologically infused quasi-therapeutic approach could heal the past in order to redeem you and return you to being a functioning heterosexual. These these diabolicalisms and abominations were, were built on a profound lack of paying attention to, to evidence and a deep misreading of the Bible. And so in many ways, I, I feel that these contemporary aberrations are are as disloyal to the texts and traditions from which they come as they are to the individuals who are forced through them like me. I want to work my way backward there. First of all, okay. what you just shared hurts to hear it secondhand, you know, to hear what you had to go through. And it hurts even more that you're far from the only full of dignity person that has had to go through that just to be who they are. I have friends who have gone through those same exact things to try to quote unquote, cure them from who they are. Um, and that's what makes it so hard. I, I am, I, I love how you described your current iteration of faith and God and where you stand in all of it, because I, it, it it not only brought me comfort, but it also felt very at home how you described it. I, on any given day, I am more, I believe in God more than yesterday. And then it could lessen the next day, right? It fluctuates. Uh, my desire to be involved. I like to go to mass. Like I still go to church because I, I feel it's one of the few places, especially living in New York City, where I can get away and experience quiet and peace for an hour. I can pray things that I, I mean. I can say things that I mean. I can say it with people that hopefully mean them with me. And yet, the, every single time I walk into a church building, I can't help but feel the tension that there are many other people uh, in my city, in my state, in my country, and in this world that are saying the same things that I am this morning that are doing shit like what you just described to happen to you, to other people. And they're saying the same things I am about God. They're saying the same things that I am about what's happening in the world. And then they're hurting people with their not just with their words, but with their physical actions. Um, and for the first time, the last four or five years, because I grew up 
as they say, like in church, like my literally from the day I was born, I was in, you know, the church pews listening to sermons and hearing songs and all that stuff. And it it's only been the last three or four, maybe five years where I have felt comfortable not really knowing a goddamn thing about anything and just being comfortable not having answers to stuff. And when I started living that way, that's when I became more comfortable just, you know, even saying I'm a Christian still, because I think I am. I just don't okay. have to explain what that means, you know? It's really difficult. Interesting. Yeah, it's 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 really difficult. But I I, I do appreciate um how you described it. And I think people that are listening, lots of people that are listening. You know, I started this podcast. It has now become a whole different thing. It's now become a multi, you know, company organization and we're working on a whole bunch of different things, but it started as a podcast. And when I started it, I was coming out of the quote unquote, the church world. Most of the work that I had done, most of my paychecks came from religious institutions paying me to do all sorts of things. And so I brought along with me, um, a lot of people that, uh, believed in God, still believe in God, are part of all kinds of church denominations. And, and so now that is, again, the, 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 the context of let's give a damn has sort of morphed and changed over the years, but there's still a lot of people that are just like me that want to see peace, that want to see justice roll down, that want to see good come of all this bad. And we're still trying to figure out how to do that in the context of, um, yeah, still being religious, but not really still having, you know, adherence to some faith, but that's difficult to even say. Um, so thank you for describing that. Um, cause I think it'll be helpful for people to sort of process through that. Um, up until a little bit of a, uh, uh, we're veering off a little bit here, but it's still in line with this up until a couple years ago, you were the leader of, uh, Coromila community, uh, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organization. And I bring this up because that's what I want to spend the bulk of our, the remainder of our time talking about. It's so important for us to navigate the really difficult tension of how do we seek peace? How do we live nonviolently? How do we seek justice in a, through peace instead of through what seems to what the rest of the world has always done, which is through violence and through taking and through force. Um, so you were, you were leading this organization. Tell us about Cormila. And also why doesn't every town and city have a community like this? Because we all need this type of community. Mm. So Cormila is an ecumenical Christian community that was set up in 1965 to respond to the sectarianism and tension that was evident in the north of Ireland. Um, it, in order to understand why Corrymeal is needed, it's important to understand that in 1801, this this new thing called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland was formed. No, there wasn't a referendum in Ireland as to whether Ireland would join that. It was an appropriation colonial project. Uh, whether or not it for, 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 fell formally under it. You know, language had been appropriated, land had been taken, et cetera, et cetera. That's 1801, 1845. Ireland was um, called Britain's Kitchen Garden. By that's, you know, it, mm. because Ireland was providing an enormous amount of the food that was being used in industrial Britain, which was being run by, which was being worked by poor people in Britain too. It's very important to say. Um, 1845, there was a terrible blight that came to Ireland. Um, it had come all across Europe, but a huge amount of the population of Ireland, which was anywhere from eight to nine million people, were were entirely dependent on the potato. And so with the arrival of a potato blight that rot the spud, um, there was deep catastrophe on the way. And the Irish quasi-government at the time wrote to London saying, well, look, we need to close the ports because the corn and the beef that's going out needs to stay here to keep people alive. And the sitting British government refused. And in three years, a hundred, in three years, a million died and a million left. And then by 1880, the population of Ireland was down to four million, having been at least eight million in 1845. Then in 1921, um, Ireland 
there had been a, a bid for independence for Ireland to become independent. This was at the beginning of the crumbling of the British Empire globally in 1921. India still wasn't even partitioned, never mind anything else. You know, when you look across the, the map of the world, you, you can see all the way, all the places that the British Empire called its own. Obviously, they belong to themselves. Um, so this tiny, small country next to Britain seeking independence in 1921 was less interesting to Britain because of it being Ireland and more because of its significance in being the first. And so Britain... Uh, decided that they would not leave um, entirely. They partitioned Ireland into this new thing called what became known as the Republic of Ireland and then this state in the north called Northern Ireland. And primarily the people who were living, the majority of the people, 56 or 60% of the people who were living in this new state of the north of Ireland were British identifying Protestant people who had, who had been in Ireland, some of them for hundreds of years, but they still said we're, we're British people in British soil rather than saying we're Irish in Ireland. Um, and language, I was in Irish language and English language, were one of the, was one of the things that um, separated those peoples. Um, but because of the famine, most, most people began to speak English for the purpose of being able to get menial jobs. Um, and so religion became a cultural marker. And so when we speak in Ireland about Catholic and Protestant, we're not really speaking at all about theological things that do people believe one thing about Mary or another thing about the Eucharist. We really are speaking about, about cultural belonging and whether or not the north of Ireland is or should be British or Irish. And so that's a really important thing to understand about what it means to speak about sectarian experiences of conflict in the north of Ireland. It really is about the ongoing legacy of hundreds of years of British presence and the ongoing question as to how it is that identities of Britishness and identities of Irishness coexist in a place like the six counties of the north of Ireland. And so 1921 partition happened and then by 1965 it was really clear that violence was going to er erupt. There was terrible conditions for working class people, British and Irish, um, but there was particular conditions under which Catholic Irish people were being put under. So there was a civil rights movement and that civil rights movement was um, commodified by people who wished to say the only way to bring our cause to the attention of Britain is by a violent campaign. And then from 1968 to 1998, there was a violent campaign called, most latterly, the most recent version of the Troubles. And Corimila and many other groups um, seek and sought to find a way to bear witness to something that might save us in the middle of weekly murders, daily murders, daily tensions, um, fortified borders, um, exacerbated political polarization, threats, um, gerrymandering, um, the, the lack of the, a huge democratic deficit in terms of the way that decisions were being made. Um, it, it, looking at how young people were being socialized separately. So kind of Catholic young people and Protestant young people tended to go to separate schools. And so looking at the impact of that and it isn't just because they hate each other that they're going to separate schools. It's also that sports that one community would like were being taught in one school and not in the other. And it was also about cultural markers. People should be able to go to the schools they want. I'm all for school choice. So when it comes to the question of Ireland. And so Carmilla is a community that is seeking to work with young people, seeking to work with adult groups, faith groups, community groups, victims groups, perpetrators groups, also other groups that seem to be less inside the question about politics. So from 1980, Cora took a vote in terms of the membership and was fully inclusive of lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people, which is quite extraordinary because homosexuality wow. had not yeah. been decriminalized in either of the Irish jurisdictions in 1980. Um, similarly, also when it came to um, people who were seeking asylum, and people with learning disabilities, Corimila was really interested from uh, for a long, long time about what it is that these experiences of being alive speak about the broader question about human belonging. Um, so Corimila these days has about um, 30 staff and works, I think, with about 8,000 people a year on various programs, maybe even more, including online stuff, um, various programs that look at what does it mean to bear witness to a hope and a vision for peace 
Um, some of those are faith-based, but not a huge amount. A huge amount of them are based on, you know, working alongside local community leaders, working alongside people who are um, recruiting young people into violence, working alongside people who are looking at what community cohesion looks like, as well as doing ongoing assessment and intervention into trauma. Um, so I, I've been involved with Carmela kind of most of the time since I moved to Belfast in 2003. And I, I think it's really important to say that, you know, for me, these last 20 years of being involved in the particular manifestation of conflict, British-Irish conflict, as you see happening in the north of Ireland, I, I think that does not mean that I have anything wise <laughs> or a template to say when it comes to conflicts elsewhere. One of the things about conflict is that it um, it occurs in its own way in different places. And where in the context of Ireland, I certainly have things to say. I am usually wanting to hear and learn and listen when it comes to thinking about what the what the lessons of that should be for elsewhere. I, I can make a few, I can make a few goals to say here's something that we have found helpful, but I don't in any way think that the the map of our compromises, the map of our attempts to to reduce the amount of deaths on a weekly basis, in terms of British Irish peace. I don't think that that necessarily provides a map for elsewhere because some of the things you have to do in the compromises of getting towards a sustainable peace with the benefit of hindsight do not seem to be hugely adequate. I've heard you talk about Cormila and the conflicts that have happened and are still happening and the the amazing work that has happened there. In the, I've heard you talk about it in the past. Um, but I've even learned you know more this time that you shared it around. And, and, and while I mm -hmm. don't think... While I don't think uh, what you all and Cormila has been doing is like a one for one with what's happening here in the U.S., no, I do. I do think that there are so many things to learn from, sure. like because even as you were talking about daily deaths and and all these things that that hap have happened and are happening, there is a tremendous amount of uh, similarities, just on a bigger scale what's happening here in the u.s what has been ha what's been happening since our inception since our very horrific bloody birth uh up up to this day yeah i mean well one thing to say in that is that for me like when it comes to telling the story about carmela it's why for me i want to start in 1801 with the act of union of so-called act of union of britain and ireland um and the, i mean some people would say to me dear god probably like why aren't you starting back in 1604 you know because to, to understand where we're at today, it is important to have some broad brushstrokes about how to be able to narrate the, the major decisions that continue to affect people in the here and now. And one of the complications is that, like when I go across to Britain and you say regularly to people in Britain, um, what, why is it that we have British-Irish conflict in the north of Ireland? Regularly, people are unsure as to why I'm calling it British-Irish conflict. They'll go, no, it's just Irish conflict. You're like, no, you don't know your own history. Wow. And so there is a complicated thing, and I'm going to speak about empire here, and I mean empire both formally and informally. There's a complicated thing where empire usually has the luxury of reflecting on its own glory days without actually knowing them. And I do see that one of the tasks of integrity of a society that's calling itself peaceful is to manifest in itself the the dedication formally of learning its own bloody past and the impact of its own bloody past on the people whose cultures, languages, lives were decimated and annihilated and enslaved in the case of the United States. And so I find it um, disheartening that the British um, that the British history curriculum does not include the history of empire because I, I don't understand how British people can understand their place in the world if they do not understand what the last 300 years of the world have been like, why the hell do so many places speak English, for instance? What, you know, what is this thing, the so-called Commonwealth or stolen wealth, as the hashtag was going most recently um, during the Commonwealth Games? How do we understand those things in the past? Because they are manifesting themselves in the present today. And when there is resistance to that, resistance to knowing the past by saying, Oh, you know, you're just demeaning us all in the here and now. I find that to be um, not good enough. There's a lot of Irish history that is shameful for me to pay attention to. When you look at how Irish people 
um, left Ireland having lots of, you know, during the famine, having been, the, the, we don't even call it a famine, we call it the Great Hunger because it was a decision. You know, the potato blight was one thing, but there was plenty of food to feed people. So lots of people who were being starved through systemic choices left Ireland and then went to the United States and were interested in fighting against the emancipation of enslaved people and were seeing that, well, if emancipation happens, well, then therefore, where will our place be? Mm. That is a story of Ireland that Ireland needs to know. We like to think that we're the friends of the world and everybody likes us because we're funny and have nice music or whatever, drink Guinness. But there is a history of Ireland that we need to pay attention to. And much and all as I am an absolute critic of the the arrogance and war-making of empire, I also am an absolute critic of the decision in the 1960s by some people to say, they they chose to say civil rights marches and civil rights demonstrations and and um, protests and interru- interruptions and interventions will not be good enough. We need to launch a violent campaign against Britishness in Ireland. And they were wrong and they murdered and tortured people over 30 years. And in the context of me paying attention to the Ireland that I want to be a part of and the, the future of Ireland that I want to be a part of, it's very important for me to to wear the shame of that on me, not in the sense that I am responsible for it. I wasn't alive in the 60s, but in the sense of that I need to know it and I need to not be undone by telling the truth of it. And that, I think, for M- for the empire of Britain, they, there is a call for Britain to know more of its past. And then for the, the the diaspora of Ireland, there is a call for us to know where we, on the one hand, think that we're not under the British empire because we resisted. But yet when Irish white people went and traveled elsewhere, we absolutely fit into this new system of empire that was being established, this racist, genocidal, anti-indigenous, um, appropriative war-making, land-grabbing, language-eradicating project called Empire. You find Irish people's names in so many parts around the world as secondary participants in that. And I need to know that. And for me to think that that isn't true is to be in denial about Irishness. And I I think my my energy for being critical of, of Empire always, from my point of view as a white Irish person, especially as a white Irish male person, um, I, I always need to be aware of that I, I, I cannot be undone by asking self-critical questions about myself and, and the identity and the history of Ireland. We were poorly treated, terribly treated. And um, having been terribly treated, it doesn't indemnify people from treating other populations terribly themselves. That's so good and so helpful. And it's something that being over here, I, I uh, maybe less eloquently than you just put it, talk about this a ton because for me, it's so it's mind boggling to see governors of states and all kinds of politicians removing our history from the textbooks because it offends, because it doesn't feel good. It. It, that's mind-boggling to me that we wouldn't face who, who we are and what we've done. And like you said, we weren't born for a lot of this. We we came, you know, you and I came really in the grand s- scope of history during very peaceful times, right? I was born in my in my country. I was born after, you know, the after Dr. King was murdered and after these race riots and obviously things have been terrible in so many ways since I was born. My point being though, like I wasn't responsible for so much of that. I didn't, I didn't do so many of these things that so many did in our country that were just shameful and horrific. But what you, I I think you said it so well, like we need to wear that. Like there's no point in not fully like fully not ignoring any of the truths, realizing what we've done, where we've come from, that shouldn't make me any less of, I, I've said this to many people that that I love and know that have supported uh, uh, Donald Trump and so much of what Donald Trump brought to this country over the last few years. And because I criticize our carceral system, because I criticize our, our police, because I criticize so many of the still hurtful systems that exist today, I have been called a traitor and, 
you know, obviously just whatever the opposite of a patriot is, I have been called that uh, in very, very vulgar ways over the last few years. And I sit here thinking, first, I don't have to defend myself against you. That's foolishness. But also, I think I'm more of a patriot because I am not unwilling to go just embrace our full history, embrace all that we've done. That's the only way that I think we can seek, again, true justice and actually go after peace is by realizing how how shitty we've been in the past instead of trying to whitewash it and say, make America great again, make whoever great again. Look at all the great things that we've done. Look at what we've done for the world. Look at all the amazing things that we've done in the world. That just is mind boggling to me rather than to see ourselves for who we really are. Um, so again, in a, in a smaller way, like what you just described has happened for hundreds of years and is still happening, you know, uh, in, in your, in your corner of the world is very, so many parallels to what's happening here right now. And it's, um, yeah, a lot of similarities. Yeah. Something to say about peace that I think is really important to, to note when it comes to thinking about what peace looks like is that it's a helpful thing to think of peace as a big field and all the actors in peace as people in a big field. Um, and in a big field, you're going to have all kinds of groups and peace is going to be built by, you know, there'll be one group that's doing educational reform. There'll be one group that's doing art, one group that's doing human encounter work, one group that's doing historical inquiry, one group that's doing deep um, policy reimagination, <clears throat> other groups that are engaged in the art of compromise of bringing political opposites to each other, other groups that are putting out really clear, really clearly their their demands. And that's just the ones that come from the top of my head. And uh, peace is often undone by the groups that are seeking peace being pitted against each other to say, well, here's the policy people and here's the, the human yeah. encounter people. And, so good. you know, which one, which one is, which one is the best? And what's so important is to go, who's putting them against each other? Who's in charge of that? Who's setting it up like those two things are opposites? Often you can follow the money. Who is it that says, well, look, we've got like in a wider system, they might say something like we've got, you know, a budget of, I don't know, 10 million pounds a year to give toward these groups. And as a matter of fact, you probably need 20 million pounds to give to these groups. And so therefore, one of the things that you do is you spend, uh, you, you create all kinds of tensions within the groups as to who does and who doesn't get the money, who does and who doesn't set up a consortium for collaborating together, etc. And peace is going to be built by people understanding what the real focus of your critique is. You could you could be crude about it and saying peace will be built by people knowing who the enemy is. <laughs> I don't think enemy language is necessarily helpful here, but the the kind of direction of of that impulse can be helpful to know where is it that the different peace groups are going to be pitted against each other, and how is it that that is actually undoing the very work that you say that you're there for. How is it that organizations across a city, if you only just take one city and think of all the organizations of goodwill there, how much time do those organizations spend looking for money, competing against each other in money, poaching each other's staff, saying, well, that group's terrible because they do this and that group's terrible because they do this, et cetera, et cetera. That group's just looking for the, the headlines in the newspaper. That group's here is, is doing quiet work that nobody knows about. All of these very predictable tensions that you can find in community groups all across the world in various cities all of that, I think, needs to be understood that the the impulse toward peace is to find a generosity towards saying we need all the manifestations and we can collaborate and value each other, knowing that each one of us is tending to a different part of the field. Some people are doing immediate trauma recovery work and other people are trying to prevent future traumas happening. Those are separate projects. Sometimes people can manage to do both together at the same time. Fantastic. But no group is going to be the everything. And so therefore, it's a group dynamic involved in the, the movements of goodwill that is really demanded. And without that, often what you can have is displaced energy towards the wrong kind of target. And you can spend a lot of time chasing after things that are going to be fruitless. So peace looks like uh, the capacity to compromise and collaborate with groups that aren't you, 
but saying they're doing the good work. It's not how I want to do it, but they're doing the good work. I'm glad that's happening over there. And let's know each other enough that we can't be brought into a really fruitless sense of tension that um, somebody is actually going to benefit by, namely those people who don't give a damn about peace. That that word picture that you just shared about people in a field, um, very helpful. Mm. It's especially very helpful right now yeah. because I, that's, that's ex- what you just described is exactly what I am trying to discipline myself. Uh, it's the way that I'm trying to discipline myself to think and to live because I am a, if you're into the Enneagram at all, I'm an Enneagram eight. I'm a protector, a challenger. I see something wrong and I want to fix it. I see somebody getting hurt. I want to help them. I, the unhealthy version of me doesn't want to work with anybody that isn't seeking justice and peace and good in the ways that I think it should be sought should be found. Right. Um, and I think I would like to say that most days I'm a a sort of healthy version. So that's not how I think or live most of the time, but it's hard to not think that way, especially now, again, in my unhealth, when I see, and again, I'm speaking American political landscape, but like when I see, you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, someone who is an elected official, you know, the other day in a, in a meeting, she stands up and she's and in, uh, it sounds almost like satire. It sounds like you can't be serious. And she's talking about renewable solar energy. And she's talking about how she likes her, you know, she, I, I like my washing machine and I like my TV and they want us to switch to solar. And, you know, after dark, we won't have any of these things, right? It, it's like, she, she went on for like five minutes to talk completely falsely and inappropriately about what like the simple knowledge about solar power and her, her completely foolish rampage, like her completely foolish tirade, like was met with claps and hoots and hollers from whoever was in the room. And it's so hard, uh, Padraig for me to, I know it's right. I know what you've dedicated your life to and the people I'm learning from this pursuing peace and and, and, and looking at this field that we're in and trying to figure out who I need to partner with, even though if we're not doing all things the same, it's hard to do when there's such outrageous nonsense being mm. shared and believed. I mean, widespread yeah. belief. I, 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 I alluded to the midterm elections coming up. I, I think it's like over 50% of the Republicans that are up for election or re-election still believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. They still yeah. believe. So there's these people that might be in power soon, more, dozens more, that don't even believe that we have a legitimate president right now. Like, it's really hard to do that right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's important to say that, like, I'm not saying that you have to be in relationship with people whose public, publicly, whose public claims are false sure. and whose public practices are causing damage to other people. That's not peace. That's, um, that's probably a, a compromise too far. What I am saying is you need to be clever about how you resist. Um, peace is a damn fine argument that doesn't have a recourse to threat. That's what peace is. And I, w- what peace needs to know is to how to speak in a way where its message can be understood and in a way where those who most need to hear it might, if they can do the, the courageous act of listening, might be able to hear it as an invitation rather than as a threat. And that is the work of peace. I have absolutely no interest in working alongside to validate clergy who think that gay people are abhorrent and are going to hell and young people need to be exercised, etc. LGBT people, queer people, you know, all the different acronyms and titles that we go under. Like, I am interested in peace for LGBT people as part of a wider society. And as part of that, I know that sometimes it'll be beneficial if I know some people who I'll be able to say to them, can you speak to your friend? And can you say to them that the way that they're speaking is actually causing death rather than me going on and calling them a homophobe on Twitter? You know, I might agree with myself, but will it be fruitful is the question. And so I'm not saying in any way that you have to feel like, you know, oh, there's these terrible things happening and peace calls me to do the following. I'm not sure it does. The question is, is what's your intervention and 
do you think that you're doing everything you can in order for it to be fruitful? And that does not involve sacrificing your own integrity and it does not involve um, participating in what you consider to be um, intolerable. Compromise is a, is a huge reality in the world, in politics, in peace, in, in corporations, in families, in relationships. And so there's always going to be a tension between the purity of what it is right. that you wish to propose and the compromise about how it is that you will achieve something that looks like the thing you wish to propose. And that will need to be negotiated in every group and every individual. And no different groups of people will make different choices and come to different conclusions. That is the work of what we call democracy. And it is also the work of time where you might say this particular group's approach is something that you absolutely might fundamentally say, I think they're starting off in the wrong place. But yet five years later, you might be able to go check it out. Look at what they achieved. I still don't like the way they went about it. But you know what? They achieved the thing they said they were going to. There might be another group that you think, I love everything they stand for, but actually they achieve very little. And so the question is, is are you looking to have your identity confirmed in terms of who you belong to in terms of the particular intervention? Or are you looking for something that's going to change in the material circumstances for others? And I'm not saying, I'm not pitting those against each other because it might be that one of those groups is a group, so is a group of artists that are, you know, to use a, a literary term, a prophetic witness to something. And you might go, actually, no, I do want to belong to the purity of the deep work that that group of artists are going to do. But of course, they'll find their own tensions in themselves anyway, that group of artists. There's no art without tension. Or you might go, yeah, I'm going to join a political party, cumbersome and problematic as that is. I actually think I want to work for change from within the context of that. Do you know, both of those are valid changes, each of which will cause huge tension for the people who choose them internally, as well as tension between them. And that is the nature of the, the work that we're involved with. And so it isn't to say you have to compromise. It is to say you need to have a sophisticated relationship with compromise because if, even if you don't think you're compromising, people around you, you will think that they are and you will have to be in relationship with the question of compromise and what it looks like when it comes to thinking about building a society. That is so, so, so good and so helpful. I felt, um, I felt, I mean, I literally felt, as you were describing what this type of life would look like, I felt peace come over me because it, it was, again, just a, another reminder. And I love how you pointed out that it, it takes being clever. There were several times during your last little monologue where it reminded me that, oh, one of the reasons that most people don't pursue this kind of life or don't ever achieve that is because it takes work. You talked about being clever and it, like it takes work to think this way, to live this way, to love this way, to work this way. It, it, and, and most people, it seems, would choose, and I've been there too, would choose, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but a, a lazier route. Because it is easier slash lazier to just call people instead of working with a clergy that, that, that might not be fully you know, accepting of LGBTQ people and saying, hey, how can we work together? To, we, we both want the same thing. We're going about it differently. Well, doing that hard work, late night meetings and working and, and partnering and doing all this stuff, it's way easier to call them a homophobe on Twitter, right? And then just be done with it. I'm not working well, with I don't, you. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to pit those against each other either. Uh, the question is, is where are you called? Where are you going to do the work? And, and for how long? Um, uh, it might be that we need them all, but it, it's probably going to be unhelpful mm. for those groups to fight amongst each other. And I, I think everybody, I think every group is using their brains. Um, and mm. the question is, is, is there a culture in the group where, the, where questions are prohibited? And if that is happening, and you find that in liberal circles as well as conservative circles, to use those crude terms, if questions are prohibited, well, then you will find that there is going to be um, there's going to be, the word violence comes to mind. I don't necessarily mean it physical violence, but there's going to be um, caricaturing happening of people on the other side. And that that's rarely helpful. <laughs> you know, laughing at another group of people who hold some power has rarely worked. <laughs> you know, shaming them has rarely worked. The question is, is what does work? And we, we're not entirely sure, but we do need to be able to ask some some good questions and find ways where 
the, the, the vision of the future that we are proposing is a vision of the future that people who I consider to be my opposite can also go, actually, that sounds pretty, f- pretty fine. Like, I'd like that too, rather than the vision of the future being, and all of you stupid people will not be around. <laughs> we will, everybody will know how stupid you were, or you will be in the history books consigned to being, you know, the new Nazis. You know, that is unlikely to be fruitful, um, even if you think it's right. And I, I suppose I'm interested in the complicated work of doing serious intellectual work in all the groups that we're part of in order to mm-hmm. look at what are, we, what are we trying to create and how do we do that? And recognizing that most people do what seems reasonable to them most of the time is a helpful way to look at it because I'm part of that self-serving dynamic too. I've done what seemed reasonable to me at times where I now look back and go, that was deeply flawed. And actually I was manifesting the very opposite of the thing that I say I was for. Wow. Again, super helpful. Uh, the, 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 and don't take, don't hear this, this word wrong, but the helpful pushback that you are giving to my mind and my heart today are exactly what I need and what I think we need this, this let's give a damn audience needs as we think about not just the next two months until November, but just, I mean, wherever we live, whatever we're involved in, it's going to require this type of thinking and living. Uh, Two quotes as we begin to wrap up here. I have a million more things I want to talk to you about. Maybe someday, some month, some year, uh, we can do a round two. Uh, I know you're a very busy person, but two quotes as we as we begin to wrap up here that are coming to mind. Uh, one is by Paul Goodman, uh, as quoted in Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark book. Uh, quote, suppose you had the revolution you are talking and dreaming about. Suppose your side had won and you had the kind of society that you wanted. How would you live? You personally in that society, start living that way now. Mm. I have been mulling over that over and over again because that this type of life that you're living, even though it's a, it's it, it it takes more rigor and more strength and I think more work to see it, you know, manifested in real life. That's the society I want. I want a peace-filled, justice-filled, uh, 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 non-violent society. So now, now is when we, you know, begin living that way. Right. Um, and obviously very, very timely with what's going on right now. Um, the author, uh, uh, what's, what's the, what I'm, I'm blinking on his name that just got stabbed multiple times. Um, uh, God, what's his name? Um, give me a second. It's going to come to me. I wrote it down here. Uh, oh, yeah. Salman Rushdie was oh, stabbed yeah. multiple times in the neck the other day. Yes, of course. Oh, up at Chautauqua. Yes, yes, of yes. course. Yeah, just, just, a, yeah. just a few hours, uh, you know, drive away from where I'm living right now. You know, yeah. since that happened, a, a poem that he, some words that he, it wasn't even a poem, but some words that he shared have been circulating the internet because it's so timely, both of what he was speaking about when he was stabbed, when he was, when his life was threatened. But again, kind of encapsulating what we've been talking about, you as a poet, a writer, a deep thinker, uh, a theologian of sorts, someone that is pursuing peace and, 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 and me wanting so many of those things for myself, quote, a poem will not stop a bullet. A novel cannot diffuse a bomb, but writers, and I would say thinkers and activists and humans can still sing the truth and name the lies. We must work to overturn the narratives of tyrants, populists, and fools by telling better stories than they do. Stories within which people might actually want to live, end quote. So those two poem, those two quotes really encapsulate what I think we're talking about here, right? Yeah, that's fascinating quotes, for sure. What do you have coming up as we wrap up? Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your work and your life. What do you have coming up? I I can name a few, but uh, if you have a a couple that are things that we should be looking out for, um, I will link to all of these uh, friends that are listening on the podcast. I will link to all these, including, we didn't even get to talk about it, but you you gave one of my favorite TEDx talks 
about war oh. and peace. So brilliant, so helpful. And obviously we talked about war and peace throughout the conversation, but um, brilliant TEDx talk. There's so much that I want people to check out, but what do you have coming up that we should be checking out? So uh, there's a book called Poetry Unbound, 50 Poems to Open Your World that's coming out in the autumn time. Um, it's in out in October in the rest of the world, but I think it's November in the United States and it's released with Norton in the USA. Um, I present a podcast, Poetry Unbound, with On Being Studios as well. And that just takes a single poem and reads it twice and reflects on it. So I was recording an episode of that just before I came on to the conversation with you, Nick. Um, so that's the, the latest season of that starts at the end of September and that's always free. Um, yeah, those are two good things. I do have a book of my own poems coming out um, at the end of 2022 called Feed the Beast. And those are poems that are particularly reflecting on experiences of exorcism and reparative therapy that I went through. Wow. Amazing. Those are all huge yeah. things. And friends, I cannot stress enough. The I, I, I love Poetry Unbound because Thanks. it's short. Uh, it's a, a, every word in your podcast episodes matters. It's such an intentional format. And I love how you dissect, uh, interpret, translate these poems in such beautiful and helpful ways. So yeah, new season coming out next month, October, November, the Poetry Unbound book, um, and then your book of poems uh, later on this year. And and lastly, you were here in New York. We won't talk about this at length, but the 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 you were here in New York for six months doing sort of a residency with the, yeah. the climate school at Columbia and with other partners. And the result of your work is, from what I can tell, is supposed to be an anthology of, you know, uh, some poems. Yeah. What's that? When is that work coming out? Yeah, that'll be like another book, another Poetry Unbound book. So it'll be, that will probably be 30 poems that are intelligent about conflict, you know, interpersonal conflict as well as conflict with the environment. And um, 30 essays, you know, an essay for each poem, looking at how the poem is a container for knowledge. Um, yeah, so that will probably be 2024 by the time that comes out. Got it. Well, we yeah. have a lot to look forward to then. Um, yeah. Padraig, thank you so much again for sharing your story and your life and your work with us here on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. We're so grateful. My pleasure. Thanks, Nick. Damn Givers, thank you for showing up and spending some time with Padraig and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please, most of all, show up next week. We have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.